are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. I just want to say a word of thanks to the worship team for their extra work and labor of love and even this service. I just, man, that was just, I kind of feel like I shouldn't be up here. We can just pack it pack it in and go home. And I mean, we already got preaching. We already got the good singing. Man, I'm just like fired up. It was a great ministry to me. Thank you guys for, for ministering to me, like you do every week. But I feel like this week was especially helpful and sweet. You know, sometimes we... Uh, where are emotions, don't we? You've heard the phrase. It's actually an old Shakespearean phrase. He wears his emotions on his sleeve. Actually, some of you might know that it probably comes from this idea of jousting, where young knights, when they were jousting, used to wear uh, the armband of their lover uh, on their sleeve so that when uh, they were out there, people could see uh, what their affections or who their affections were set on. At least that's the tradition, but Shakespeare picked it up, and even we today pick it up, and uh, it has both uh, good and bad connotations, does it not, right? Um, I have a middle son who wears his emotion on his sleeves, and most of the time that's a good thing because he's usually pretty loving and passionate, and so in that sense we can say it's a really good thing. Look at him. He wears his emotions on his sleeves. Of course, it can also be used very negatively, can't it? Be careful of him, or watch out for her. She's one who wears her emotions on her sleeves. Things like anger and resentment and impatience would be things that would cause you to be wary of a person who is emotive. Uh, It's been said of me at times that I wear my emotions on my sleeve. Uh, In particular, I was preaching at Calvary Bible Church this morning, and I had a really good memory of such an occasion where I wore my emotion on my sleeve. I was a young buck, but not too young to take responsibility. And uh, I was playing soccer in a county league here in uh, Columbus, Ohio on a team. And uh, it was the one and only time I had ever received uh, what they call a red card. Uh, If you're familiar with soccer, you know what that is. It is an immediate disqualification from the game. And if it helps you, it was an immediate, or they would call it in Britain, a straight red, right? There was no yellow caution. The aggravation was so vehement that it deserved immediate dismissal, as they say. And the reason I bring up Calvary Bible Church is because the very next day I was ordained for public ministry. So (laughs) it was one of those days that I will always remember as a day where I wore my emotions on my sleeve. Yes, I suppose that idea or that phrase is good or bad directly depending on which emotion is being exhibited. Yet there is one emotion that is rarely, if ever, exhibited amongst people that are emotive. And I think this is especially true in the life 
of most Christians that I meet. And I must say, this is an emotion that I too myself have a hard time wearing on my sleeve. The emotion I'm talking about is the feeling or the emotion of guilt. And similar to it is its close cousin, shame. Shame we've talked about in recent months and even in recent years. None of us naturally love to express feelings of condemnation of times where we have done wrong. That's what we call guilt. And none of us choose to flaunt the truth we all feel deep inside that we are actually bad people dressed up in good people's clothing. That's shame. But biblically speaking, it's actually a dangerous place to not want to wear our feelings of guilt or shame on our sleeves. Biblically speaking, let me say that again. Biblically speaking, it is very dangerous to not want our feelings of guilt and shame to be worn on our sleeves. Because, biblically speaking, the people in the Bible who actually expressed these deep emotions outwardly were those who were most often in the process of repentance. Repentance... The desire, when God's glory confronts us, to turn from our sin and fall into God's mercy is the central rhythm of the Christian life. As well, it's an important biblical theme and, actually, the historical theme of this Advent season. Time and time again, we are brought face to face with God's good and perfect standard, the beauty and the weight of which brings us to our needs. And like the angel of the Lord, clothed in radiant splendor, who appeared to the lowly shepherds on the hillside, who were then sore afraid, God's glory humbles us to the ground, fills us with regret, and makes us yearn for grace. Which, by the way, the Father gladly gives to us, as the angel so graciously would explain, unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. See, time and time again, God is actually at work to repent us, to restore to us the joy of our salvation, and to bring us back to life as we look on, lean on, rest in his Son. Advent itself, along with its close cousin Lent, is intended to be a penitential season, a time when we squint our eyes and look even more intently on our weakness, our mortality, and our failures revealed by God's law, feeling and expressing outwardly our guilt and our shame. Doing so actually creates an extra sense of urgency and expectation for Christmas morning, when the grace of God will arrive in flesh and blood in a newborn's cry from a back alley in Bethlehem. Advent is all about repentance. And repentance is all about wearing our guilt and shame on our sleeves and receiving the gracious gift of Christ's free robe of righteousness. And we find such a story, such an Advent story, in the most particular of places. Probably none of you have turned to Jonah as a particular Advent story, but in the throes of repentance, you won't find a better Advent story. We find it in this strange and unexpected people named the Ninevites in the story of Jonah. Yes, that Jonah, Jonah and the great big whale. Or fish, depending on your translation. I would like to think it's a whale, because whales are cool. Today, I want to show you the blessing of being clothed 
in repentance. And I want to maybe show you, maybe in a more clear way, I want to show you what repentance looks like or what a heart of repentance instinctively does. I want to show you the blessing of repentance. So tonight we're going to have two main points here. And point number one is that first off, repentance listens to bad preaching. You guys know the story. We actually, it wasn't too long ago, we went through the story of Jonah, did we not? And we heard this story. So I don't want to rehash the old sermons of the past. <clears throat> but you know the story. You know how it goes. Everybody receives mercy. In fact, that was the tagline of our sermon series not too long ago. The endless or the bottomless mercy of God. Everybody in the story of Jonah, praise God, finds mercy. And that even includes Jonah himself, the one who never wanted mercy or mercy for other people. He himself finds mercy at the end, which is why I think he wrote the book, or the Spirit of God inspired him to write the book. The sailors along the way, when Jonah runs, they find mercy. Nineveh finds mercy. Fig trees find mercy. And even cows find mercy, praise God. Everybody in the story of Jonah finds mercy, but not everybody demonstrates repentance. And it must be said, actually, the only person who doesn't demonstrate repentance is Jonah, the one you'd least expect. You see, the reality is Jonah was a half-hearted prophet with a half-hearted message. First and foremost, in chapter 1, he ran away because he wanted mercy for only half the people. In Jonah's mind, there were only two categories of people. You have good people who deserved mercy from God, and then you had bad people like those nasty Ninevites, and they did not deserve mercy from God. And so when God gives the command to his prophet, go and preach to Nineveh the first time around, the message that I am telling you, Jonah hopped on a ship, and you remember the languages, he went down and he went down and he went down and he went down and further down away from the presence of the Lord. He ran. He wanted nothing to do with God's mission of mercy for broken and bad people. He already had his mind made up. I'm a deserving mercy person. They don't deserve mercy. God, I'm running away from this. We do not agree. And so in the belly of a fish, well, actually, before that, you remember the whole story, he runs away from God, gets caught in a storm. The sailors know this is bad news, bears. The reality is someone's on this ship who needs to be thrown off. They play Yahtzee. They find out it's Jonah. Jonah gets thrown off and gets swallowed by a whale. And in the bottom of the whale, Jonah offers up a half-hearted, repentant it was halfway. Yes, there was a little bit of an admission of sin. Yes, I ran away from your presence. But Lord, it's your fault. Your breakers are crashing over me. Your waves are, are, are washing over my life. It's you who are coming after me. And in a half-hearted way, makes some lament of his own situation and even does cry out theologically true things, even though in his heart it didn't sound like he truly believed and God had Enough mercy for Jonah that he, in a resurrection kind of way, spat him out on dry land three days later. And in our passage today, we realize that Jonah only goes halfway in. We see this in verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. This is the second time around from verse 1. 
Jonah went and rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And here's some detail for you. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. But Jonah, only going in to the city about a day's journey called out. Didn't even go halfway, maybe close to halfway. And not only that, he does half the job of only preaching to maybe half the people. He didn't even get around to telling the important people. He just left it up to them to keep spreading the message of condemnation. We get this from verse 6. The word reached the king. Jonah didn't even tell the most important people about the message that God was telling him. Jonah was a half-hearted prophet with a half-hearted message. But the reality is the Ninevites were full-blooded sinners in need of full-hearted forgiveness. And this is amazing. And yet we have this in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. What an amazing little sentence that is. The people of Nineveh Really, really bad people. The most violent people on the planet. The worst kinds of people hear one horrible sermon and they believe God. They just take God at his word. And you have to think, like, what were they doing just like years later building up to this? And here comes a prophet and all of a sudden, just a moment, everybody, the whole city now just believes God. The reality is, I, I want to kind of speak that, try to speak this into a Christian context because I actually think it's pretty, it's pretty difficult to, to see this kind of revival. Maybe that's the best word for it, right? That'd be the kind of the best thing that we could uh, attribute to. It was like this, this revival moment where God was speaking to them in such a direct and clear way that they couldn't ignore it, and they all bought in. They just all got suckered into whatever the word of God was was saying to them. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. And and what we have to realize from this moment is what they were believing. Here's what they were believing. Judgment is real. That's what they were believing. And and this is actually legitimately hard to do, I think, in the Christian life, to get Christians to understand that, to feel that, to be woken up by that. And I, I, I wonder if even the sin of this week, did it, ever, did it ever cross your mind that judgment for that sin is real? That, it, that an eternal judgment, a wrath of God judgment is real for your sin this week. Can I make it the sin today? The sin before this sermon. (laughs) It is actually hard to kind of comprehend the emotion of that, to feel that. I mean, like, conceptually, I get it, but they felt it at this moment. It's like, maybe, maybe it takes a deep dive into sin. Well, what is sin? Well, Romans 14 is very clear. Anything that's not of faith is sin. Anything that's not Faith in Jesus 
is sin. And you might be thinking, well, that's all the bad things we do. Yes, that's what we call unrighteousness. That's one of the major categories of sin, like, like people who do bad things are not believing in Jesus. That's what we call unrighteousness. And yeah, that's sin. But don't forget that also people who do really good things to try to leverage that for self-salvation, that's not a faith either. So, so the good things we do that think earns God's love that we don't need Jesus for. We just do good things and God likes us. There's no in-between. There's no one working in-between. That in and of itself, like that's what we call self-righteousness. And my friend, that's not a faith and that's sin too. And, and so you understand like unrighteousness, of course, that deserves hell judgment that we can check that off. But it is extremely hard for us to feel that our self-righteousness is the thing that also deserves death and judgment as well. And my friend, let me let me just let me just warn you real quick. And this is kind of something I was feeling this week. I think there is a view of Christian sanctification that works merely on the engine of performance. What we what we do. In other words, there's a kind of sanctification out there, or at least talk of Christian growth out there that leaves space for not needing any Jesus. We just check off the list and go about crushing Christian duties. And I think that's I think that, I think that's a big problem. And I think one of the biggest problems with performance-based view of sanctification is that it often forces us into an attitude of self-justification and performance rather than a heart of confession and repentance. Do you hear that? Do you hear that difference? Sometimes just checking off the list allows us to just perform duties and we never go through the motions of confessing sin and turning and repenting from either unrighteousness or self-righteousness. You can crush sanctification sometimes without confessing and repenting. Do you see that? Rather, I think sanctification is all about confessing. What? Confessing what? Your inability to live up to God's perfect standard. And then it's all about repentance. Repenting from what? Repenting of your own sin and subsequent attempts to self-cover by your own performance. But it also includes then desperately crying out for mercy like it's your last breath. This This is what the Ninevites nailed in their repentance. We, we have no hope. We're doomed. That, that is their repentance. That was their sanctification. And yet a lot of us were like, oh, we're good. I just, oh, I'll just read my Bible a little bit more and I'll be good. And if you just read your Bible, then you never actually have to go through the motions of confessing sin, unrighteousness, or self-righteousness. And you never have to repent and then therefore you don't need Jesus. Growth in the Christian life is learning to trust in your performance, your strength, and your righteousness less and less, while simultaneously learning to trust in Christ's performance for you, Christ's strength for you, and Christ's righteousness for you more and more. It's about confessing and repenting of your failed attempts to save yourself and banking everything on Christ's successful sacrifice and resurrection to save you. It's about needing him more, not less. 
It's about your growth in, it's not about your growth in righteousness as much as it's about growing in your need for his righteousness. That's, that's what the Ninevites were understanding at this moment. They didn't need to read their Bible more. That wasn't going to help. They were on their last leg. They had 40 days. They needed mercy from the outside in. They needed a rescue plan, a divine intervention. Faced with the judgment of God, the Ninevites didn't just feel bad. They wore their grief. Even more than that, even more than just this expressed emotion, it was a desperate last chance expression. It was a loathing of sin so deep, a desire to be new so palpable, a hunger for mercy so intense that it couldn't help but be seen on the outside to shine through the body and be communicated in their countenance and in their choice of clothing. Can I ask you, my friend, when was the last time you repented like that? Do, do you know where the sackcloth robe is in your in your closet do you do you know do you, do you know where it's stuffed in your drawer when when's the last time you weeped for mercy because of your sin the sin of this week both unrighteousness and self-righteousness and maybe maybe if you don't know where it is, why not? Why not? Are you? Do you not know the mercy of God? Uh, surely you do. You're all good Christians in here. Surely you know the free and full mercy of God. I I, I, know, I don't think that's uh, that is the problem, but it's not ultimately the problem. I think I think our most natural and insidious problem is that we have clothes that we think fit better. I, th- I think we just like the clothing of religion just a little bit. It fits us better. I mean, sackcloth doesn't fit. <laughs> sackcloth is itchy. It annoys me. I, I have clothes of religion that fit me just well, and everyone seems to like it. I get compliments on my outfit all the time. Even though you are just as bad and broken or worse than the Ninevites, like me this week, you may have, you may be possibly recognizing in this moment that it's probably been a while since you've shed a tear over your sin, let alone sat in ash. And really, to be honest, shame on us. Why are we so afraid of this kind of desperation, this kind of humility? True repentance is so desperate, so humble that, like the Ninevites, that it even repents of its own repentance. For even in this, we fall short. Like Jonah, all of our repentance is half-hearted. True repentance isn't about the quantity of its fullness. In other words, it's not about how much sin are you confessing versus how much sin is actually there. That's not really what it's about. True repentance is about the desperateness of its emptiness. In other words, it doesn't have anything else except needing mercy. True repentance wears the emotion of guilt and shame and turns to the unconditional mercy of God as its only hope. Full stop. I think there are a couple things about their repentance that's actually pretty pretty amazing. Number one, it was a God-fearing repentance. Notice, Jonah is the one preaching to them, and they believed God. 
that's, that's an incredible – it's a flyover statement, but that's an incredible little detail. Jonah, that dude, is preaching to them, and they're like, guys, we need to believe God here. That's, that's amazing. They had enough fear of God in this moment, no discrimination for Jonah, just God is at work here. In other words, it wasn't about Jonah. But also, it was an indiscriminate repentance. It wasn't about each other either. Look what it says in the end of verse 5. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. There was no intermixing of uh, discrimination between them. They could have looked at each other and be like, you need to repent maybe, but I'm good. <laughs> I'm the great one. You're the bad one. They could have, it, all of them. doesn't matter who it was. They each individually heard the word and then corporately together were like, yes, we are desperate. We're doomed unless mercy shows up. My friend, may our repentance reflect that reality, that kind of desperation. Repentance, yes, it listens to bad preaching. Okay? It gets wrecked by bad preaching. Okay? But also it actually responds to this idea of God's judgment. It responds, it actually gets busy after the fact of hearing God's judgment. And there's a couple things that are actually really important to reflect on here in this text. Number one, I think there's a call here to embrace our mortality, to embrace our mortality. This comes from the people's response. Look in verse uh, look in verse uh, four. Jonah began to go into this city, going in a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's literally the worst message. It's like those hellfire and brimstone messages, like those street preachers with like the end is near. That That's what we're talking about here. That's, that's the kind of message. And by the way, you're like, well, Jonah didn't know. He knew. He just got ate by a whale and was baptized into Jesus and thrown up and said, like, that's Jesus. He knew, the, he knew a message of mercy. And by the way, in case you're wondering, uh, arise and go to Nineveh. This is verse 2. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message. Actually, the, the words are the message that I am speaking to you. Jonah is on dry land at this moment. <laughs> go speak the message that you just personally experienced in your body. Great fish is like submerging underneath the water at this point, right? All right, so he knew, he knew. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Verse five, and the people of Nineveh believed God and they called for a fast. Now I, I fast, you guys might not know this, a little weird, but I fast. I fast fairly regularly actually. Um, you can do it too, it's great. But I fast for reasons related to like fitness and health. I don't... I mean, I do fast religiously at some points, but it's not like what you think, right? And I think sometimes, I, I heard this uh, earlier this week, fasting is the spiritual equivalent to kale, right? <laughs> nobody, nobody really wants to do it, but we might find it necessary. Fasting is actually not necessarily something like kale that's particularly rhythmic, right? We don't put kale on the menu. We don't try to rotate that stuff. It just shows up when it kind of needs to show up, right? Some of you probably have a banger recipe for kale, and I'm sorry, I'm not talking about that version. I'm talking about the kind that just like shows, you're just like, this is worse than grass. <coughs> but fasting sometimes is not as circular or as rhythmic as we'd like to think. When we experience profound grief and shame, or when we're in the throes of lament or repentance, those are not normally the times we gather around to throw great feasts. 
really, I've, to be honest, I've never had prime rib at a funeral. Just not one of those things I've ever experienced. But on the contrary, you might find people in the moments of deep sorrow saying something like, no, thank you, I've lost my appetite. And you're like, no, you, you really need to eat. I don't, you don't look so well. I, I think it, w- I, it would help you. Can I, can I go get you a meal? You need, you need to eat. Can I, can I watch you eat? I'm actually concerned for you. Biblical fasting is more or less circumstantial than it is rhythmic. And I would say at those moments where you feel like you've lost your appetite, my friend, actually, that would be the best time to fast. One author said it like this, Fasting is not about creating personal suffering and loss in order to teach ourselves we need God. Fasting is harnessing the pain that will inevitably come as we try to obey God in a fallen world and leveraging our weakness as an opportunity to hide in Christ, run to him for strength, and to throw ourselves at the foot of his throne. So we fast because our sin and the toll it takes on others. We fast because as long as we're breathing, we have, we're not yet done sinning. We fast because natural disasters ravage the world. We fast because people die of starvation and thirst, lacking the necessities of life. We fast when cancer tears through our bodies and those of our loved ones. We fast because the entire cosmos is groaning for redemption. We fast because Christ has not yet completed the work he began in the manger, that he comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. There will be times this Advent season that even the best of Christmas sweets seem dull and lifeless because of the immense grief and sorrow and repentance that we feel. So my friend... In those times, fast and pray. And remember that life is fleeting. We really are just dust. Life is short. It's a vapor. Embrace your mortality and know that only Jesus himself is the resurrection. That Jesus himself is the only life we have hope in. Remember that he ever, though, lives above for me to intercede his all-redeeming love, and his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race, and now, in a very living way, sprinkles the throne of grace. But also, we get to embrace our humility. In a true sense, no one can see you fast. In fact, Jesus warned us about fasting publicly so as to be seen. Those who contort their face or display their gauntness in order to be seen. It would be a religious problem. However, though, there is a strong admonition and even call in biblical rhythm for wearing sackcloth, which, of course, is totally visible. This is the most crude and coarse of fabrics. And you wouldn't really take your burlap sack into a tailor or a seamstress and ask them to do a proper fitting or hemming. It's a humble way and a base way of living that reflects the truth that nothing matters except the grief I'm experiencing, not even what I look like. It merely fills the base need to be covered, much like the fig leaves Adam and Eve sewed together in the garden. And like John the Baptist's coarse-haired, honey-stained garments in the wilderness, it preaches a desire for repentance and renewal, a longing for leaving this old life behind and humbly crying out to God for deliverance. And though we probably won't wear sackcloth and ashes here in a service like this, it may be fully appropriate to kind of Look in the mirror, and as you look in the mirror and you don't see things that are like super great because of the things you're feeling, to just come to church anyway. 
It's enough to say that, ladies, if you're not feeling great, don't feel like you have to do your makeup in order to come to church. It's all right. We feel it too. Men, if your hair's crazy and your beard's going a thousand different ways and you smell like dirt, you can come to church. We all feel this kind of humility and this baseness. We don't have to pretend we're something more than we're not. And my friends, the reality is the throne of grace is open for you, and you're welcome here. I'll share a little self-anecdote that's not in my notes. I went to Calvary Bible Church to preach this service, uh, this sermon this morning. And as I was hanging up our coats because it was rainy and kind of cold, I was hanging up our coats, and I was kind of there's a lot of coats, and I kind of shoved some of the coats down so we could fit four coats in a row. And I just a waft of like cigarette smoke just came. And it was from somebody's coat. And I was like, praise God they showed up today. I don't, I don't know what they're struggling with. I don't know what their demons are. But maybe this is their version of sackcloth. Where they're just like, man, I, I don't have my life together. I don't care how I look. I don't care how I smell. I'm going to find grace. And my friend... Yeah, we get it. We feel it too. Embrace your humility. The reality is, Jesus wasn't afraid to associate with these kind of humble people too. Finally, please remember, if you don't remember anything else in the sermon, remember that the the king is the one who actually takes the curse. This comes from Jonah 6. We haven't really mentioned the king at this point. But after the fast and after the sackcloth, the word, verse 6, finally reached the king of Nineveh. and He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, there are those cows, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn away from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from the fierce anger so that we might not perish. Out of the description of the people's response where they fasted and put on sackcloth and then in the description of the edicts that the king gave through his nobles to the people, remember that even your beasts need to be fasting, your beasts and everyone else throughout the whole city, they need to be fasting and putting on sackcloth and ashes. Notice that it's only the king who is recorded to have actually sat in ashes. This is a direct connection back to Genesis 3. It actually goes right back to the curse that God gave to Adam and Eve where he said, because of your sin, you are created from dust and to dust you shall return. It's actually the very uh, significance of actually sitting in dust and ashes is to reflect on the curse that we've experienced. But in this moment, the king is actually the one who leaves his throne, takes off his royal robes, and you can imagine enters the city with this edict and he himself is covered with sackcloth and even in a more personal and symbolic way he himself takes on the curse and puts on his own head and only his head the ashes of our dust my friends there's a beautiful picture of jesus christ himself the one who laid aside his throne and the humility is recorded in philippians 2 did not hold on to things of godness as something to be held on to, but made himself nothing. 
Or Galatians 3, where Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by himself becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And on the cross, we see Jesus with ashes on his head embracing our curse for us. Not only that, we see this cry of dereliction in verse 9. Who knows? It's the same cry Jesus cried out on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was despised and he was rejected. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The king of Nineveh cried out with repentance, with a hope for mercy and deliverance. But Jesus, the ultimate repentant king, cried out in the midst of judgment, except this king had no hope of escaping God's judgment. He cried out for you, and he took it for me. Both in his living and his dying, Jesus embodies perfectly the humility that you and I, when faced with our sins, so often fail to embrace, don't we? It's one thing for God to take on flesh and be made man, but for him to do it in such utter weakness as a baby, it's truly incredible. He's born to an unwed girl on a cold night with less than little renown. He makes himself utterly utterly vulnerable, susceptible to the brutalities of this world, capable of even death. Jesus was even the kind of guy you'd first pity rather than praise. This is the king of the universe. Embracing rejection from his own people, despised by his generation, treated as a sinner even though he himself knew not a speck of sin. In his incarnation, in his living and his dying, Jesus wears the humility all the way. The weakness, the shame, the rejection, the mortality that rightly and only belongs to us. And he did it so that we could receive membership in the Father's family that rightly and only belongs to him. This perfect weakness, this substitutionary humility of Christ covers our limp and lame shows of sorrow. It replaces our impotent expressions of regret. And it's through him that we are now free to have no faith in our repentance, though repent we must, but instead to have faith in Christ who has been made perfectly humble, weak, frail, and mortal on our behalf. Wouldn't you know it that as, the, as you gaze intently on the advent of Jesus with this attendant humility, that it is used by God to move you back into rhythms of repentance. To see your sin for what it is. Seeing Christ wrapped in weakness, God aims to lead you in, publicly con- in public confession. Like, well, when does this happen? Well, first and foremost, it happens right here at church. God gathers us into his house to confess verbally, boldly, and honestly as part of the worship that we are wretched sinners and desperate frauds. Then he causes us to respond with joy, real and palpable joy, when you hear him say through the voice of your pastor the words that I will declare to you now, that there is no judgment in Jesus. Every piece and every part of the sins you've confessed are already freely and forever forgiven because of Christ, your repentant king. This is exactly what the king experienced in verse 10. Who knows? Maybe he will relent. And because of what God heard through the repentant king, he did not do it. 
I pray that you would make the most of this Advent season. I truly do. And I pray that you would learn to repent, to love to repent, that you would be cut to the core with grief over your sin. For without Christ, you are a short time from from the judgment of God. But as with Nineveh, you are called to repent so that you might receive and rejoice in this, that you are forgiven. And the clothes we now wear is that of forgiveness. As God convicts us, let us then confess. And as he brings us to life with the gospel, let us then pardon. Perhaps you'll sing a little louder this Advent season. And it's good to not just feel what God works in us, but to actually express it. After all, God has done the Uh, God has gone to the greatest of lengths to express how he feels for you by sending his son from heaven to earth. And surely it might feel a little awkward at times, but that's wonderfully okay. Christ has already done all this perfectly for us. And besides, if a cow in Nineveh can do it, then why can't you? My friends, there is enough mercy in Jesus to publicly wear your confessional emotions on your sleeves. And I pray that you would learn to love, to repent of your sin, to confess that Jesus is Lord for you and that it truly is finished. Let's pray. Redeem.